uh, I hope, right off the bat, that you were struck. That after reading a passage like that, I would say, this is the word of the Lord. And then you would say, thanks be to God. Man, the Bible is a fascinating book. Who would have thought a story like this would be part of the Bible? That a story like this would be part of what we call God's Word. If there's one lesson that we can learn right at the very beginning of this whole thing, it's this. Never ever think that the Bible is supposed to be read as a, an inspire, a book full of inspiring stories with moral examples for you to follow. Because clearly, uh, Tamar and Judah do not make very good moral examples for us. Well, if that's not how we're supposed to read the Bible, how are we supposed to read the Bible? Well, we say here all the time that the Bible is the true story of the world. The Bible is supposed to be meant to, is supposed to be read as one continuous story climaxing in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And every other story in the Bible, even, even this story, somehow is connected to that big story of Jesus' ministry on earth. And there's no diff, there's, there, that's no different for this story as any of the other stories that we look at. It's, it's, it's strange, for sure, and contextually it's weird, too. Because if you know the book of Genesis, in Genesis 37, we start to read the story about the life of Joseph. And we read about how Joseph grew up in his father's house. Now, Joseph is, uh, is um, uh, uh, his favored son and how his brothers don't like him very much. And uh, so they sell him off into slavery in Egypt. And then in ver chapter 39, we read about how Joseph ends up at Potiphar's house. And, and it carries on the story of Joseph's life in Egypt. But then smack dab between chapter 37 and chapter 39, we get this <laughs> bewildering tale of a man and his daughter-in-law. What on earth is this doing here? Well, as Mark introduced just a few minutes ago, this is the first Sunday of Advent. This is the first Sunday of, uh, of our four-Sunday, five-week reflection on the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. And in Matthew chapter 1 we get a genealogy of Jesus. So his descendants are listed. And what's interesting about this genealogy is that it's unique among ancient genealogies because it, it contains the mothers of some of the people that uh, are listed in the genealogy. It doesn't just give us the men, it gives us a few women, five women, in fact, who are part of the genealogy of Jesus Christ and Tamar is one of those women listed in Matthew chapter 1. Why? Well, that's what we're going to try to explore over the next few weeks. We're going to study the mothers of Jesus that are listed in that genealogy from Matthew 1. And the first one, of course, is, is Tamar, we find in our passage this morning. And that's what we're going to look at. See, the moral of the Bible, if you can call it of a moral of the Bible, is that Morals will never, ever save you. Your moral record, your good deeds, your attempts to live a, a clean, uh, 
life will never ever actually bring you into relationship with God. What has to happen is grace has to break through into the life of people who are sinking and being crushed under their sin in order for them to have a true, living, meaningful, life-giving relationship with God. And what this story shows us is, is that was the case for people centuries before Jesus came into the world, just as much as it is for people like you and me living centuries after Jesus came into the world. Because this story is about grace breaking through in the lives of two people who are sinking under the weight of sin. And Christmas is all about God in Jesus Christ entering into this world in the flesh, breaking through, punching a hole in the roof of the world and climbing into it and bringing his saving grace to you and to, to me. People who are also sinking under the weight of their sin. So what we're going to do is we're going to figure out what this story teaches and see how grace breaks through for Tamar, but especially for Judah in this passage. And I just want to apologize to the sermon breakout leader this morning because you got a tough job on your hands. Uh, I pray for you all the best. Uh, okay. Let's see how grace breaks through in this passage together. Well, we read that Judah marries a Canaanite woman, has a bunch of sons. They grow up, and now it's time to start marrying them off. So Tamar, which we think is probably a Canaanite woman herself as well, though the text doesn't tell us, we, we assume that she is, or, or we suspect that she is, she is married to Judah's oldest son, Ur. The text tells us that Ur was a bad guy, wicked guy. So God judged him. He was put to death. And so now Judah tells his second son, Onan, to marry Tamar. And he says, you need to marry her and you need to produce offspring with her. Now, why is that? Well, you got to understand that the ancient Near East is not like modern day Canada. It doesn't, it's not a welfare state. It doesn't, it's not like a modern welfare state. We live in a time where we have social services that take care of the most vulnerable. They didn't have that in ancient times. And, and there was a responsibility that God had placed upon his people to care for those who were most vulnerable. And who were those people? Those were basically widows, orphans, and uh, immigrants or aliens to your land. And so what would happen is, is, is a woman, if she lost her husband and had no children, she was very, very vulnerable. And therefore, uh, through something called leveret marriage, uh, a sibling of the deceased would marry the woman and would produce offspring for her. And that's what uh, Onan was expected to do. But Onan didn't want to do that because this child, even though he would be fathering this child, this child would be the child of Tamar and Ur, and therefore would, uh, would actually be uh, the, the heir to Ur's portion of the estate in the family. And Ur, because he was the oldest son, he would get the lion's share of the estate. So therefore, the father or the child that Onan would father would somehow be... Uh, uh, in line to get the largest portion of the estate when Judah passed away. You follow what I'm saying? 
So Onan is like, this is not good for my family. So Onan does not fulfill his responsibility, and therefore God judges him and puts him to death as well. Okay. Now, what we read is that Judah tells Tamar to go live like a widow in her father's house and wait for his third son to grow up. His third son is probably a fair bit younger and therefore not ready to be married. And we read in verse 11 of chapter 38, it says this, Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son Sheila grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Judah had no intention of actually giving his third son to Tamar. He thought there was something wrong with Tamar, that maybe she was cursed or something, and that's why his sons kept dying. So he did not intend to actually give his third son to her. He thought it was her fault that they're all dying. And so there's, he, is, he is refusing to fulfill his required social justice obligation to Tamar. And so Tamar... Eventually, she realizes this, that she's not going to receive this husband. And so she takes matters into her own hands. And she acts, and she acts very, very boldly and very, very brilliantly, actually. She sexually entraps her father-in-law. Dresses up as a prostitute, meets him at the gate. Uh, they sleep together. And then he says, what do I owe you? And, uh, or she says, what are you going to pay me? And he says, I'll give you a goat. And I don't have one. I got to go home and get it. And so she says, leave your wallet basically uh, with me and go get the goat. And I'll give your wallet back when you uh, get the goat. So that's what's going on here. Now let's pause for a minute. All right. What is Tamar doing? Tamar is seeking justice. That's what she's doing. And though we're going to see that she does it in a sinful way, it is actually a brilliant way because what she does is, is she seeks justice against the sexual double standard by using it. She knows that Judah, in that cultural period, he has the freedom, so to speak, to have sex as he wants. And that's how it was in ancient cultures. Men of power and privilege were free to have sex any way they wanted, virtually with whomever they wanted, virtually without any real consequences. But a woman, of course, no, 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 no. A woman was not allowed to do that. And that's why when, uh, when it's discovered that Tamar is pregnant, uh, Judah says, well, bring her out and burn her. And it's at that moment that he shows, she shows the double standard because she says, hey, wait a minute. Uh, do you recognize this wallet, the seal, the cord, the staff? Do you recognize this? And flips that double standard on him. But, but there's more to it than just the, the sexual double, double standard. Because you see, in the Bible, over and over and over again, the people of God are told, you must take care of the most vulnerable people. You must, if you are a person of wealth, if you are a person of, of privilege, if you are a person of means, you have an obligation. This is not something that you can do just simply out of the goodness of your heart. In fact, this is something that you are absolutely required to do. You are to care for the less fortunate. 
And you see, there are circumstances that make it very hard for the less fortunate to be able to have opportunities in the world the way the more fortunate do. So today, for example, uh, if you are in a marginalized community and you don't have access to good education, you are already behind the eight ball before you've even started. If you basically grow up functionally illiterate, unable to read, unable to reason well, etc., you are right away behind the eight ball. And so social injustice is failing to provide the means necessary to allow even the marginalized and even the vulnerable the opportunity, the equal opportunity, to be able to flourish. And you need an education in our culture to flourish. Well, in that culture, what you needed was family. And Judah had a responsibility as someone who had means and who had wealth and who had privilege, all that kind of stuff. He had a responsibility to provide family for Tamar so that she had equal opportunity, not equal outcomes, but equal opportunity to flourish. That was his responsibility. And what we discover in this story is, is that social injustice, a failure to fulfill the obligations to those who are uh, 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 um, on the margins, is a very, very serious sin. In verse 26, once sort of the story unfolds, what does is, what is Judah say? Listen to it. This is verse 26. Judah recognized them. This is when he sees his, his wallet, etc. And he says this, She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Sheila. She is more righteous. Literally, the word there actually is just. Here's what Judah is saying. Is he saying that Tamar is innocent? No, he's not saying that Tamar is innocent. She did entrap him, absolutely true. But he does say that she is more just than he is. He's more, she is more just than me. Here's the point. Social injustice, a failure to meet your responsibilities to those who are less fortunate than, than you, can be so serious that it can overshadow the so-called brazen sinfulness that you see individuals uh, enact in their lives. Or let me, let me put this in a very pointed way for church people. In the church... We have a tendency, I think, sometimes to emphasize certain sins over other sins. And probably sexual sin is the one that we get hung up on the most. And we say, oh, the pagan world out there, the world, the secular people, the godless people who don't believe in God, all those people, you know, they're sex crazed. They're involved in pornography and they're involved in, in all kinds of uh, uh, weird sexual fetishes and they're, they're constantly fixated on sexuality and they don't feel that there should be any boundaries to their sexuality and they just use it any old way they want and it's terrible and it's awful. But if in the church we don't use our resources, our Money, our knowledge, our expertise, our, our advantages uh, based upon our, our status, even in the world. Some of us have, have, uh, have influence in certain industries. Some of us maybe are uh, business owners, etc. If we don't use these 
these advantages that have been given to us by God in order to bless other people, our sin may be worse. Our sin may be worse. See, the only way that we're going to see that, 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 that those obvious and damnable sins of the world, of the other, people outside the Christian community, outside the church community, the only way we're going to see that those sins are, are no worse than the sins that, are, that you and I might be susceptible as we live good, clean lives within the community of the church is if we always keep our eyes on the fact that grace has broken through in us. And it is grace that must break through in them. What do I mean? Well, let's keep going through the story. God uses Tamar to awaken Judah through her sinful plot. Yes, but she awakens him. And it starts with with verse 24. And it's a very shocking verse. When Judah finds out that Tamar is pregnant, what does he say? Bring her out and have her burned to death. Literally what it says there is just two words. Take, burn. That's it. And we read that and we go, what on earth? This is crazy. How in the world could, could that actually happen in that world? You need to understand that for the first audiences of this story, it was just as, as over the top and crazy as it is to you and to me. To them, it was beyond what is legitimate and what is fair retribution as well. But you see, Judah is looking at this as his opportunity for revenge. Remember, he thinks that, that Tamar's responsible for the death of his first two sons. He doesn't realize that he's probably been a lousy dad, that he has contributed to the way they were as wicked people. He takes no ownership. He's happy to, to blame shift the way we do when we're in sinful, when we're caught in our sin. We think, hey, we can find someone else to blame. Let's find someone else to blame. And he's like, she's cursed. She killed my sons. And, and I'm going to take revenge on her. Now, understand something. This is a man who is currently part of the family of God who know more about the real God than any other people on earth. He knows more about God and more about grace and more about his goodness than any other people on earth. And if he does this, if he follows through in this, he is absolutely going to ruin himself. He is on the slipperiest of slopes towards evil. He already started in Genesis 37 where he said, hey, let's get rid of our brother. And they said, yeah, let's get rid of our brother. And let's, what are we going to do? I know, let's sell him off to a bunch of, of slave traders. Okay, yeah. And what, how are we going to cover this up? It's Judah who says, oh, I know, give me some gold. Get, get a goat. Okay, spill the blood of the goat on the, on the coat. Let's go bring it to dad and tell dad that he's dead. This guy is, he's part of the family of God. He's part of the covenant. He knows about God and he is totally turning his back on his God and on his maker and he is embracing the pagan, sadistic, worldview of the people around him. And you here are people who know more about God than probably all your neighbors. Because many of you have been raised in this church. Not this church. This church is too young to be that. But you know what I mean. You've been raised in a church. You've been taught the things of God.
You've seen his grace at work in your life and in your church community. And possibly by failing to understand God's responsibility that he lays upon us to care for those around us. Maybe you are wandering away from him as well. Maybe you're a kid here. Maybe you're a a young teen or an older teen. You have come to church time and time again. You have listened to pastors preach and plead and beg and cajole and maybe even try to threaten you into believing in Jesus. And you have sat through it time and time again and you have said to yourself, Wah, 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 wah. What does this mean? It's not relevant to me. I don't really care. I'm far more interested in what I'm discovering on my Instagram feed. This is a warning to you. Maybe this is the moment right now where God's grace is going to break through to you. Judah didn't see it coming. They get Tamar, they drag her out, and just before she's about to get burned, Tamar has, her, has Judah's stuff returned to him, and she says in verse 25, she says, See if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. The word there that's translated recognize, it's a word that has a, a wide range, a, what's called a semantic range, and it can mean to recognize, to discern, to understand, to realize. Tamar's not just saying, do you Do you recognize the stuff? She's saying, do you recognize you? Who you are becoming? And it's like the slap in the face where grace broke through in Judah's life and he's like converted. Because he sees something that he didn't see before. His response again is verse 26, right? She is more righteous than I. All this time, I've been better than Tamar. She's cursed. She's put to death my sons. I am the righteous, wealthy uh, Israelite from the, the covenant family. And now he's, he's saying, wait a minute. She's more righteous than me, more just than me. I am not any better than her. Look, you guys, you've been born and raised in Christian homes, some of you. That's a tremendous privilege You know more about God than lots of other people, and that's a tremendous privilege. You're not a bad person. But underneath it all, do you wonder if you're a better person? Do you think of yourself as a better person? Like those people out there who are so screwed up, who just make stupid decisions based upon self-interest time and time again. And then their families are disasters. Their, their businesses are disasters. Their marriages are disasters. If those idiots would just smarten up and behave like me, man, their lives would go a lot better. See, conversion for Judah was understanding She's no better. Conversion for anyone is understanding that 
There is no one out there who is better than anyone else because as the Apostle Paul says, we have all sinned. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Okay, I don't, or you don't, smoke or drink or go with girls who do. You don't sleep around, fine. But what about your pride? Cleaned up on the outside, but, but inside you're a, a, a dirty dish. You are a whitewashed tomb because you look down at those others and it's so foolish and so stupid if you really think about it because if you're in 50 feet of water and you are drowning 50 feet under the water, it is the stupidest thing in the world to look down at someone who's drowning at 500 feet of water and saying, well, I'm glad I'm not that poor sucker. We're all drowning. We all need grace. That's, that's the point of the story. One of the points of the story. Judah experienced this awakening. I told you what he was doing in chapter 37. I told you what he was doing uh, um, by the end of... Uh, or. Yeah. I told you what he was doing in chapter 37 and what he's doing now by the end of chapter 38. But if you read the rest of the story, Judah becomes the brother who says when Joseph is hatching his plan to mess with his brothers and teach them a lesson, when Joseph says, you've got to keep Ben here, Benjamin, the favorite son of Jacob, you got to keep him here while you guys go back and bring Jacob down here. Judah says that will kill dad if, Mo, if Ben is the one who has to stay. And he stands in and said, I'll do it. I'll do it. Chapter 44. The way that grace breaks through in your life friends, is when you look at the cross and you realize that Jesus had to die for you. You're here in church with your parents. Your mom and dad are Christians. They believe in Jesus. And you're a kid. You're 15, 12, 17, 9. I don't know what you are. And you're like, Sin, ah, is it that big a deal? Maybe you're 25, maybe you're 40 and you're still thinking, eh, is it that big a deal? I'm not really that bad. I don't, I'm not a wild animal here. Am I really that bad? You need to see in the cross of Jesus Christ, you need to see him dying for your sin, your specific sin, your self-centeredness, your refusal to bow to your creator and submit yourself to him, your desire to run your own life and rule your own life. You have got to see that as Jesus was hanging on that cross, he was paying the penalty for your sin, not your parents, not humanity in general, not the white man, not any of this. He's paying for your sin. Every single one of us has to stand in front of the cross and be humbled by it and realize that nothing short of the death of the Son of God could take away my sin. But that's only half the story because when you look at the cross and you see Jesus' arms open wide, you also realize that he was happy to do that for you. For you, 
Grace breaks through when you say Jesus is hanging there not because the Romans put him there or not because the Pharisees put him there or not because the Sanhedrin conspired against him. He's hanging there because he loves us. Because at the drop of a hat, a billion angels could have come and destroyed all his enemies. But instead of doing that, he took it. Because in the Garden of Eden, or Garden of Gethsemane, he said to his father, Not my will be done, but your will be done. And God's will was that Jesus would pay the penalty for our sins. So when you see him hanging there, he's thinking about you. He has your name on his lips, those parched, dried, cracked lips that can barely move because of the agony he's facing. But he's saying, I'm doing this for him. I'm doing this for her. I am glad to do it because I love them beyond their wildest dreams. Now, when that breaks through, when grace breaks through, You can't look down at anybody. You just can't. All you can ever do with those who are less fortunate with you than you is be compassionate and be generous. You know, social justice is a big deal in our culture right now. eh? Everybody wants social justice. Everybody's talking about social justice. Everybody seems to be fighting for social justice regardless of their definition. Everybody wants it. You know who the first people were who cared about social justice? It were the Christians. There was no culture on earth that said, you know what? We don't have a right to to, to oppress other people groups. That's wrong. Even if it benefits us, we shouldn't do it. Everybody said, of course we should. We're stronger. We're smarter. We're better. We should advance. And if they're our slaves, sucks to be them. And then the Christians came along, and because of the gospel story, they said, we can't do that. That's wrong. Because God's word has shown us it's wrong. And that's why Grace Valley Church, oh, we put a lot of emphasis on evangelism. I'm trying to evangelize everybody right now. Conversion, faith in Jesus Christ, we want that bad. And we will proclaim that boldly, but... But, friends, we do Christmas hampers, we do tax clinic, we do uh, soup and social, we do these things for those who, who, who can benefit from them because we also know that God loves the poor. And you and I who are poor in spirit are now rich in love. And so we love the poor too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your grace breaks through time and time again in people's lives. Those of us who trust you and love you, we know that grace broke through for us. It broke through our stony hearts so that they might beat with the love of God. Father, empower us, enable us to love the way you love those in need, to care for the marginalized, to care for those who are lonely, to care for those who are vulnerable.
Father, we, we have many people in this church who have adopted, who have been foster parents or continue to be foster parents. We have people who faithfully attend community dinners and put them on. We have people who help out at the tax clinic year after year. We thank you for those people as they practice the gospel in the way they live and in the way they serve. And we pray for more of that. We pray for more opportunities for it, Lord. We thank you that we could care for the Radwins as they came to Canada. And we're not patting ourselves on the back, Father. We are humbled and privileged to be part of their journey of being able to reestablish themselves here in this country. But we thank you that we could, could help and we ask for more opportunities too. And if it costs us, who cares? For there is so much more joy in blessing and caring for and helping those in need than there could ever be in any of the material wealth that, that we could amass for ourselves. So do a work in us, we pray, by the power of your Spirit. Amen.